Well, it's when you go to the restaurant, we called up the other night. How long is this a fairly popular place? How long is the wait for takeout? We were at the beach. How long is the wait for takeout? Two hours. If you, if you come, if you put it in now, you'll have it at 8.15. This was at six o'clock. We said, thank you very much, but no, thank you. Okay. Then every, I'm not mad at them. They're busy. I, I get it. Now, if the guy told me, I'll take your order and didn't tell me, and I sat in my car for two hours, how annoyed would I have been? Right? So a lot of it is about telling that to people. Now, how do you deliver that message in a meaningful way? Well, you say something like this. Now, I understand that's not what you want to hear, Mrs. Jones. But having said that, other builders might tell you, come on in, meet with our salespeople. Great. They'll sign a contract. And now you and the other 500 people can sit in line waiting for your chance to start the house. Once you come in to see us in February, you're going to move through our process in 60 days and we're going to dig your house. I can tell you that because I'm telling you right now how long the line is to get to the front of the line. I'm not going to tell you that your house takes seven months, but not tell you that it takes four months to get to the starting point. and welcome to Building Perspective with Matt Riley and Molly Elfman. We're here to bring value to you and your team by exploring all things sales and marketing related. All from different perspectives. All right, and welcome back to another episode of the Sometimes Weekly Podcast, Building Perspective. And Molly and I are here uh, to chat with none other than Al Trellis, and we are going to be talking about pricing shortages and expectations. So really, really jam-packed episode today. So Molly, what do you have going on? So I am very happy to have Al here. Um, I'm going to embarrass him a little bit to get started, even though I don't think he can get embarrassed. Um, Al, it, I am... I am one of Al's biggest fans, and I'm just going to claim that right now. Um, I think after his wife, Roselle, it's probably me. And he knows that because every single time I see him, I tell him that he is an absolute genius. And I don't say that flippantly. Um, when I first came into the housing industry, um, Al and I were chatting about my business model, and I will never forget he said, okay, here's your product. This is how many people you have, literally just on his fingers. This is what you're doing, da, 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 da. Okay, this is how much money you're making. And he was literally on the dot exactly right. And he did it in five seconds. Um, and ever since that day, I have um, taken the advice that Al has given me throughout my career. And truthfully, I would not be where I am. And group two would not be where we are without the advice of Al Trellis. So how is that for an introduction? Sounds great to me. <laughs> Molly, I think Al's going to hire you to just come around, come along the road with him and just give his intros everywhere he goes. I love My it. new Al sales department. It's fantastic. <laughs> so we're so happy to have you. One of my favorite things about you is that is your brutal honesty. And, um, you know, you're, you say it like it is and you don't sugarcoat. So I, I want to start with that because we need your brutal honesty. What we're talking about today is really important and it's 
what companies around the country are facing. And, you know, anyone who wants their handheld and sugar and spice and everything nice, that's probably not going to be this episode. We're going to get right into it and get to the, um, you know, to the meat of what we need to talk about. So why don't we go ahead and get started with... Yeah, well, f- let, let's let's start. Yes, let's dive right into it. Let's start real quick. Al, why don't you share, you know, your, you know, 5,000 foot overview of who you are, how long you've been doing this, what your company does, just to kind of give, in case some of the audience maybe doesn't know who you are, um, just to kind of give them an overview of, of what you do and how long you've been doing it. Sure. So this is my, this is embarrassing. This is my 49th year in home building. So if you if you Amazing. run the math, you can tell that I'm over seventy. And um, I I used to work at the NAHB, and back in the seventies, I was the director of technical services. For about fifteen years, I was a builder, and for the past twenty five years, I've been a consultant, speaker, writer, and we own parts of multiple home building companies. Uh, we've sold parts of our, our home. We've sold our home building companies, and we're partners in lots of land development deals around the United States. Um, I have the same business partner for 50 years, and my son has worked in my business for 27 years. Um, we have 46 clients. The smallest one is about $6 million, and the biggest one is about $250 million. I usually don't work for the nationals. I work for individual builders. I usually compete with the nationals. Um, I'm pretty well-rounded in my uh, knowledge of home building. I don't talk or write about customer service very much. I leave that to people like Carol Smith. The only people I'm interested in serving are my own customers. I don't want to tell other people how to service theirs. Um, I am. I would say I'm an expert on pricing. I, I've written a lot of, on pricing, um, including a wonderful 60 or 70 page handout that people can get if they like that I did for the 2013 IBS. I've written a lot about spec houses. I consider myself extremely well-versed on that. Um, and, and I'm both a tactical and a strategic thinker. So we, we own a lot of plans. In fact, Molly and I own a, a plan a service called Values That Matter, which is a, a, a exclusive plan service so that if you belong to it, you get to use certain plans in your area. No one else can use them. We have over 50 plans in that collection. Uh, my company owns uh, 700 copyrights on plans. I've been working on plans. That's the other part that I really love to work on, my expertise is in plans. So when I am say I'm tactical and strategic, I coach my clients not in any one thing. I coach them in how to be successful business people. If we want to talk about how to go to the bank and borrow $10 million, we can do that. And if we want to talk about why I think the hallway should be four inches wider, we can talk about that. And so, um, and that makes me a little unique, I think, um, among consultants, advisors, coaches, whatever word you want to use. Uh, I'm fairly picky about who I work with. I, I need to w- work with people I like. I need to work with people who listen. Um, if you can't listen, I don't want you to waste my time and I don't want you to waste your money. So um, that's kind of a, my philosophy on the job of a coach. Um, I think... I was a good builder. I wasn't a great builder. I'm a much better coach than I ever was a builder. So um, with, with that, let's talk. I love it. Very good. Okay, so we said we're going to talk about pricing shortages, not pricing shortages, but pricing shortages and expectations. 
And let's let's just dive into the first one, which is pricing, which is the huge elephant in the room that uh, everyone is trying to figure out, right? And that is mainly lumber pricing, right? We've seen what over a hundred percent increase since the since yeah. what probably April May in in lumber pricing. Builders are all everybody's wanting to know how do we handle this? Not necessarily it could also be how do we handle keeping our lumber prices down but also how do we handle these price increases and and with our with our buyers right so lumber pricing being the number one topic let's let's dive in and let's kind of hear the the genius of al trellis when it comes to uh this this part of the puzzle all right so the first thing i would tell you is that while lumber pricing is the biggest culprit we're going to see more increases in lots of other things. We've already begun to see it. So we could get into a more fundamental discussion of economics and supply and demand and elasticity of demand and a whole bunch of things, but we don't have the, the time and I'm not sure the listeners want to hear all that stuff. But um, so pricing is related to sales velocity and pricing is related to costs, although We've always taught, and I advocate that you should not use cost-based pricing. You should use market-based pricing. And we can mm-hmm. discuss the difference. I think most people know the difference. Um, and there's a great, great, great book. If anybody wants to read a book that's pretty heavy, just don't just read only the beginning. It's called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. It's a very, very famous book. It's a textbook for graduate school. Uh, it's by an author named Nagel and Holden. It's one of my favorite books. I've read it twice, and uh, it's a slog every time. But um, <laughs> it's it's a great, great book. And so, you know, so prices go up. Lumber goes up. On a bigger house, the price of lumber goes up $12,000, $15,000. What do you do? Well, your first reaction is, if you're a cost-based pricer, I raise the price by $15,000. In fact, a lot of builders will tell you you should raise the price by $15,000 plus your margin. Um, but again, the, the reality is that only works if the market will accept that price increase. If you yeah. historically vendors have sometimes had to eat cost increases or get part of it, or in some cases get more than, than that price increase, depending on the market demand. Um, so what you've got now is you've got a bunch of factors. I believe there are five of them that conspired to make what for many of our builders is the best year they've ever had which is insanity when you think about it, since they didn't sell any houses in March and April in much of the country. But what happened is, for, for the reasons which I can go into or not, depending on whether you want to hear it, for certain reasons, the demand has gotten crazy. So we May, June, July, and August across the country were, for most builders, phenomenal. Interesting conversation. I also try to watch other industries. I, I'm a big believer that if you want to be a successful home builder, car dealer, any any business, you look at other businesses. A lot of what I've learned about pricing, I learned from McDonald's. I learned from uh, FedEx. I learned from people have nothing to do with home building because that's a philosophical conversation, not a home building conversation. But the, the uh, thing that, that I think is really important is all these factors have conspired to allow people to pay more and feel okay about it. So at the moment, 
in most cases, you can pass on the cost increases without a big problem. The, the reality is, if I buy a house today for $25,000 more than it was six months ago, my monthly payment is equal or less than it was six months ago. So yes, I paid more, but I don't feel it. And I'm and, and then these other factors, such as I don't want to miss out on these rates. I've, I'm tired of the house I live in. You know, now that I've been home every day for 150 days, I don't want to live here anymore. I want to leave the city. Um, you know, there's a million reasons why people are buying. And so um, affordability is one of them because with low, low, low rates, then something even at a higher price is more affordable today than it was before. So that's, I think, what's what's going on. So how do you pass these costs on? Well, for most builders, they just raise the price. And that's the most common uh, way to do it. And we can we can talk another time, if you'd like, about the right way to run pricing sheets and how often you should have pricing increases, et cetera. I believe in more frequent small increases, even if you don't have cost increases. Because when you do get a big cost increase, then you don't have to have a big increase to go with it, right? So yep. Um, yep. that's that's my philosophy. So, but But I've had... Most of my builders, more than half, have raised their prices in excess of $10,000 at least once and most of the time twice in the last two months, three months. And, and they're, a lot of them are anxious about the houses that they already sold that they now have to spend an extra $10,000. So one of the questions I think that you want to discuss is, what do I do for the people that I already sold the house to and now I'm hit with an extra $12,000 lumber bill? Well, depending on your contract, you may not be able to do anything about it. But you can, maybe you can. I have one of my builders. He has a clause that says if costs go up more than 2%, he can pass cost increases on to you or he can cancel your contract. And my builder just gave his buyers the choice. And in our case, the, we did it for every individual house. We calculated the difference. We told them the difference. There were, there were 18 of them. We told them the difference. And we told them... Uh, we don't want to cancel your contract, but we have the right in a spirit of working together. You know, we propose that we split that price. And in your case, it went up $14,000. If you accept a change order for a $7,000 price increase, sign here. And if you don't and you want us to cancel your contract, sign here. And so far, we've sent out about 10 of them. And so far, everybody said, okay. But we're prepared to have a certain percentage say no. Now, at the same token, there's almost no inventory in the system. So for most people, if they haven't already bought a spec house, there's very, very few of them around. So if you don't buy a pre-sale, you can't find a spec house. You can find a used house, but we don't sell you. We're not in the used house business. So hopefully that we all understand that. And we've chosen not to be in the used house business, right? So I think that's an an important um, factor. The other, the other thing I think that is driving this market that I should spend a second and talk about is inflation. If you don't believe that there's going to be serious inflation in the country over the next five years, I think you're living in la-la land because you cannot economically dump $5 trillion into an economy and not have inflation. It's just not possible. I mean, you can get kind of stagflation and you can get various forms of inflation, but Stuff's not getting cheaper. It's getting harder to produce. Commodities are going up in price. 
the labor pool is is shrunken a little bit for us. Um, you know, one of the reasons that lumber prices have gone up so much has to do with how much wood is being diverted to pressure treated lumber for people that are now putting new decks on their houses and redoing their decks. And I mean, on my street alone, I probably have seen a million dollars to two million dollars of renovations going on. You you can't find a pool contractor in America today who's going to tell you he'll give you a swimming pool in less than three months because everybody's doing it. Everybody's improving their house. They're either staying and improving or they're saying it's beyond repair. I'm moving on. And so now, again, this is the people who have money. There there are lots of people who've lost their job in this thing, and I don't want to understate that. Having said that, this COVID situation is not an equal opportunity employer. It has dramatically affected the lower income people more than the upper income people. And think about who most of our customers are. Most of our customers are the better part of the society from an income point of view. Um, you know, you get people who are moving up from a house, they already own a house, which is how they created equity. We could have a giant conversation about equity and opportunity and home building and homes as the number one equity producer for the average American. Number two, um, you try to get renters to move into new houses, and we are getting some of that, but there are another great part of the economy, about 30%. They're, they're always going to be renters because they'll never make enough money to really afford a house. And as housing becomes a little bit less affordable over time, and it has, then fewer and fewer or more and more of those people will never achieve home ownership. So I think this is a, a factor. But again, go back to inflation. If you really believe, like I believe, that inflation is a factor, what's the number one hedge against inflation that the average American working person can have? Molly, well, what is it? Rate. What is it? Well, the interest rates. Yeah, well, how? Because the, the interest rates don't help you. It's buying a house at a low interest rate that helps you. Right. Right? A low interest rate doesn't help a renter. A low interest rate, if I buy a house, and I and especially in America, if you go to Canada, you can't get a 30-year mortgage. The average mortgage in Canada is five to seven years. And then you have to renegotiate the rate. So here in the States, if you go get a 30-year mortgage at 2.75%, yeah, your, your utilities may go up, your maintenance costs may go up, but the bulk of your payment is fixed for 30 years. What better hedge against inflation where, where else can you go invest $300,000 of which only 30000 is your money and get a $300,000 hedge against inflation? You can't. There's nowhere else. It's the only place the average American can leverage up and lock in low interest rates and basically protect themselves on three hundred grand. right? I mean, think about that. Yeah, we totally agree with you. <laughs> yeah, so... So that if you, to me, that's one of the drivers. The smarter buyers are figuring out, you know, I, I can afford the house at this price. Maybe I can't afford it in the future. If prices go up, I'm locked in. I need this as a protection against inflation. I don't think they sit around and think about their inflation-adjusted model, but they unconsciously understand what's happening. So I yeah. think that's a big factor. Uh, I want to go back to the what you said a few minutes ago about um, the different ways to pass on the cost increase. Um, when you were talking about splitting the difference and all of the people that you have had that, you guys have had that conversation with, um, have done it, you know, that sounds to me like there is an opportunity for that to hurt the buyer relationship or to strengthen it 
So can you go like a little bit deeper about the approach that you guys took when you did that to make it a positive experience for the buyer? Sure. So I think the secret, to me, the secret of everything in running a business that's customer centric is, um, is honest information, honesty, integrity, letting people believe that there's nothing going on that they don't really understand. And, and one of those things when we talk a little bit here about expectations is you cannot deliver a house, in my opinion, today, right now, if you sold a house last week or last month, you cannot deliver that house the same way in the same timeline that you could have six months ago. It's going to take longer. There are, you're just beginning to really see shortages show up more and more, which are, which is exacerbated by all these sales. So not only do you have the COVID factor on the one side, on the supply side, now you got an increased demand. Everybody sold a huge amount of houses and all those people are now in line waiting for their turn to get started and get their house. And all my builders have backlogs of houses sold but not started at almost record levels right now. So, you know, builders that we have builders that last year sold 200 houses that this year have sold 350. I mean, think about that. You, they're not geared up to deliver 350 houses a year. And ordinarily, the things you would do to gear up, you can't because everybody else is trying to gear up. And at the same time, your materials are now short. Oh, and at the same time, the labor guys are beginning to say things like, well, I can go up the street and get an extra dollar a foot. So what are you going to do, Jack? You're going to see yeah. some serious pressure in the next month or two. We've already been. And, and the only. And the only way that the builder can offset that, right? Cause they're way out over their skis. They're, 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 they're staffed to manage 200 and they've got 150 more. Uh, they can't, you know, they've got all these shortages. The only way that they can offset that is timing. So they're just, they're just pushing that build time further out, further out, further out, which then opens you up to even more cost. More. Right. Well, this is what happened by the way, in the, 2004, five, six boom in Florida. You, I remember, I remember going there and my one of my builders had a project and they sold out in one night. They sold 120 townhouses in one night. And, and I said to him, why, why'd you do that? What do you mean? Well, that's, that's a disaster. You've just fixed the price for 120 houses. The last of those houses won't be delivered for 18 months. What, what's, do you think that prices are going down here in the boom of 2005? And it turned out that, by the way, that half of those people were not real buyers. They were investors, which which is really a fancy word in most cases for speculators, by the way. Mm-hmm. So when people talk about I sold a house to an investor, I usually jump on their butt and I say, oh, a real investor or a speculator? And they usually say, I don't know. Well, then, then he's a speculator. So the... The thing that's going on, we're, we're beginning to see some of that around. You know, as, a, as a, I'm going to digress, you know, there's a lot of money floating around, big money that's raised publicly to buy rental houses. There's money sitting on the sidelines waiting for the COVID spring next year when the protection about foreclosures and things goes away. They're waiting to buy these houses up and turn them into more rentals. It's a little frightening what percentage of the single family houses in the country are rentals today. It's a, it's a bigger number than people realize. I saw one report that claims it's close to 6%, but, but, which is a big number. But anyway, so 
go back to Molly's question. I think the secret is is honesty and realistic expectations. The time to tell these people that we sold a record number of houses in August and your house may not start for three months is now. If the salespeople are saying the same thing they've always said, how long does it take to get my house? Take six months to build. That's the problem. Because the reality is, yeah, it might have taken six months to build. And now let's say it only takes seven months to build. But it also takes two or three months to get to the front of the line. Yeah, what I wanted to add in there is I think a lot of sales people or marketing people kind of approach this as more of an apology of like, oh, we're so sorry, you know, for what for all of it. And they take on the burden of apologizing for what's happening in the world. And I, I don't think that that's necessary. So I really like the idea of taking it from the approach of you know, just fully transparent. Like this is this is where we are. This is what's happening, and um, not apologizing for the situation. If that makes sense, makes perfect sense. In fact, I wrote an email to all my clients last month, and in there I used a phrase that sounded a little like an apology. And I got a I got a couple of letters from people, um, in, including one from a from a very good friend of mine who's quite well known in the industry, saying I think this is a better way to say it. And so I sent that out immediately to my clients. And I said, again, in the spirit of transparency, you know, I said these words and these words are better. By the way, that that person's Jane, Molly, who you know. And 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 Jane's been on our podcast as well. Yeah. And so and, and I and I said, Jane's words are better than my words. But but again, my intent when I originally wrote it was to help people understand what's going on. And I think it's not. It's not honest and it's not good business to not tell people, well, when you go to the restaurant, we called up the other night, how long is, this is a fairly popular place, how long is the wait for takeout, we were at the beach, how long is the wait for takeout, two hours, if you, if you come, if you put it in now, you'll have it at 8.15, this was at six o'clock, we said, thank you very much, but no, thank you, okay, then every, I'm not mad at them. They're busy. I, I get it. Now, if the guy told me, I'll take your order, and didn't tell me, and I sat in my car for two hours, how annoyed would I have been? Right? So a lot of it is about telling that to people. We've got, I've got one builder, one of my favorite builders. I'm, I guess I'm not supposed to have favorites, but just don't tell anybody he's my favorite. Um, you know, parents aren't supposed to have favorite children, and consultants aren't supposed to have favorite clients, but anyone who says they don't is a liar. So um, the, the, we try to sell 12 a month, we try to start 12 a month, and we try to close 12 a month, right? And we only make a certain number of appointments. I'm going to tell you right now, if you call that builder today and you want to meet with a sales consultant, do you know what you're told? I have one left for January. If you don't take it, that was that was two days ago. That's probably gone. So what you'd hear today is, I apologize. You know, we're we're sorry to make you wait, but our first appointment is for February. You can come in and talk to a salesperson now. How do you deliver that message in a meaningful way? Well, you say something like this. Now I understand that's not what you want to hear, Mrs. Jones. But having said that, other builders might tell you, "Come on in, meet with our salespeople. Great, they'll sign a contract." And now you and the other 500 people can sit in line waiting for your chance to start the house. Once you come in to see us in February, 
you're going to move through our process in 60 days and we're going to dig your house. I can tell you that because I'm telling you right now how long the line is to get to the front of the line. I'm not going to tell you that your house takes seven months, but not tell you that it takes four months to get to the starting point. Right? So here's what's interesting. So far in the last, since we've, we've been doing this now, since the backup has gotten, we've always done this, but the backup has gotten longer and longer. We've only had two people say no. Right? Hmm. We have, we make 18 appointments. A, we, we know our rates. If we make about 18 appointments a month. We'll end up with about 12 people starting. You follow me? Because yep. first they sign a preliminary agreement, then they sign a final contract. And so we know the percentages. It's the marketing funnel, Molly. You could talk about that. <laughs> We've so, done anyway, a episodes yeah. on it. Now, so again, if you, if you want to talk about price increases, if lumber goes up $20,000, you only have three choices, right? You can, you can absorb it and make $20,000 less. You can raise your prices $20,000 and get it all, or you can put go to an infinite number of points in between, right? But effectively, the, all the answers fall in three sets. So for most of our builders, if demand is high and the market will pay it, raise the price. I mean, price is the ultimate determination of many things. And most of the time, it's related to velocity. Not always. Here's a classic example. You're about to cross the desert. And there's a big sign, last gas for 150 miles. You look at the needle, it says you have a quarter of a tank. How important is the price of the gas? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's, a, that's a part of the problem that sometimes people can't get that. They can't get that. Now, right before you go to the desert, there's 14 gas stations on the corner there. It's the end of the city. There's 14 gas stations in two blocks. <clears throat> Does price matter? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, unless they're in collusion, which, you know, yeah. then that's a different conversation. So, <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, I mean, price is such a fickle thing. And, and, and I, I would be foolish to not digress here and say this. Sorry for the digression, but oh, wait, I'm apologizing. Never mind. Listen to this digression. The, the, the myth of many people, many builders, many salespeople, even some customers, the myth is that price is always the number one consideration of the decision to buy. That's a lie. And I've got a circle. If anybody wants it, I'll send them to them. There are five main things that people look at in any product. Okay. They fall into five characteristics or aspects. There's the financial of which price is one, only one. There's the physical. There's the emotional. There's the functional and there's the procedural. For different buyers at different times with different products, every one of those can be the most important. I hope everyone understands what I'm saying. If I want to buy a laptop and I have a Mac, and I travel like I did up until COVID 220 days a year, what is the most important single factor to me of my computer? It's reliability. It works. I assume that any one that I buy is that. What am <laughs> I, I doing? I'm dragging, it, I'm dragging it all across America. What's my number one care? I know I want to know how much it weighs. Right. I need a lightweight computer. If a lightweight computer costs more than a heavyweight computer, price loses. 
Now, if there are two computers that, like you said, Matt, are reliable and are both meet my weight requirement, which one will I pick? Then I'll pick one with a better price. Exactly. Now, but it could be a different hierarchy. There's three computers that meet my weight requirement. Now, from a functionality point of view, one of them is significantly better than the others. They're all equally reliable. But from a from what it can do, one can do more, it can do it faster, it can do it better. I might pay for that. It depends on who I am. If I right. use the computer to get emails, I don't care. If I use the computer to build giant spreadsheets, I care. Right? So understanding those five aspects of the product is the key to understanding when you can get price increases and when you can't. If the other things in the circle are more important, you can get price increases. If the if the competition is low, you can get price increases. But if other things align to make price the, the arbiter of whether people buy or not, you may not be able to get price increases. Right now, circumstances have conspired to allow us to get the price increases. Yeah, I really like this answer, Al, and I'll tell you why. Because you give different scenarios, you give specific answers for the different scenarios, um, whereas some people just like give one size fits all and say, oh, this is what you should do. Um, I like this because it's not it's not vague. Like there really are only so many different directions. And then that's what you should do if that's the position you're in. Well, absolutely. Go ahead, Matt. Were you going to say something? I was going to say the for home building when it comes, you know, when it comes to these mass, you know, when I say massive big price increases or continually aggressive, smaller price increases, the other X factor that we can't forget about is the appraisal side of it, because we're in a scenario right now where the market demand and pricing is, is going to significantly outpace what appraisers are going to say that the home is worth because they don't care that your frame package. My wife is a realtor and she was just telling me we're seeing lots of under appraisals around where we live. Ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollar under appraisals. Yeah. And you can put obviously you can put things in your contract that state this contract's not contingent upon on appraisal of home value. The the other problem comes in that we can discuss is what if a good portion of your buyers use FHA and or VA loans? Absolutely. Because there are built in protections for those loans that you can't that don't allow you to require that buyer to pay the overage. Well, absolutely. In fact, if you go back to what I just said about the five aspects of the product, right? What I call the total product. The look at the the financial. We talk about price. Can you think of another part of the financial? So this circle, I have a circle. The circle is divided into five pieces, like five slices of the pie, right? The five aspects I just talked about. But the circle is also divided into sixteen finer slices. Inside the financial slice, price is one, but one that's even more important for many buyers is terms, right? So yeah, what's the number one, one of the number one up until recently, what was a huge promotion when you would go to buy a new car? What were they going to do for you? They're going to give you 72 month financing. What, 0% interest or right. low now interest that's less yeah. appealing now that interest rates are 2% for a car loan. That's not a big yeah. deal anymore, right? But for right. years, because cars are historically a payment buy, and many, and for many people, houses are a payment buy. Many mm-hmm. builders don't sell price. They sell payments. And that's the yep. whole point I was making. With low rates, payments are low. 
you talk about a $12,000 lumber increase. What does that mean? That means a $50 a month payment increase. Well, if my payment already went down $100 because rates are so low, I'm still $50 under where I used to be. So a lot of this is being driven by this whole payment thing. Now, you're right, Matt, that as the appraisals become a problem, we're going to have some more problems. And we're seeing some of that, not everywhere, but some places, particularly more toward the bottom of the pricing structure of new homes, more toward the starter and first-time move-up houses. The the higher-end houses, it's easier to manipulate the pricing a little bit, if you know what I mean. The the yeah. appraisal can be it's a, it's a lot looser at six hundred thousand than at three hundred thousand. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and and also that upper end price point is not going to be an FHA or a VA loan either, right? They're conventional buyers who are twenty percent down. So if you're serving that first time, first time move up buyer, this is some you know that's obviously something that you have to take into consideration. Now, as as a builder before for me. I was okay pushing the price increases along the way and pushing appraisals because if I raised the price $10,000 and only got five of that um, at when it came time for appraisal time, that was still five more than I would have gotten. And I've pushed the appraisal value up another five because I've now gotten some more closings and I'm continuing to kind of push that needle a little bit. That's the long game. You're playing the yeah. long game. I mean, That's right. But you always... If, as a strategy and tactics coach, when I coach strategy, I'm always asking my clients this question. By the way, this conversation, are we talking about the long game or the short game? Because if you don't have that conversation, then you're not a good coach, right? Because I, I could give you advice for today, but it may not be good advice for tomorrow. So we always have to have that conversation. Um, what, what game are we playing? And by the way, we, we can play both games at once, but sometimes they're in conflict. And so then you have to make a decision. I mean, all good... So, so because I was in the army for a while, I always, I always think about things from, a, and I, if you've never read the book, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, I suggest that you read it. And by the way, you can read different, there's multiple versions because it's 2000 year old Chinese. So mm -hmm. it's translated by different people, different ways. But, but one of the conversations you always want to have is, is strategy and tactics are not necessarily the same thing. Today's good tactics may long-term be bad strategy. So we have to make great managers understand when things are in conflict, they've got to make a decision because it's wonderful when everything lines up one way. But the hard part is, well, I want to raise the price because I don't want to lose the margin. But if I raise the price, what am I going to do to the velocity? These are the kind of trade-off discussions that good managers and good owners and good employees have all the time, all the time. I'll tell you some things. We are seeing bad lead times and bad availability. We're beginning to see it in some tile. We're seeing it in certain appliances. We're seeing it in some light fixtures. We're seeing it in some floor coverings. Um, we're really beginning to see cabinet lead time. Lead times are going up, and the choices of the materials that you can buy are going down. We're seeing that everywhere. So reviewing your choices, maybe narrowing them right now, is probably not a bad Thing if you work together with your suppliers. Would you recommend, and this just kind of popped in my head as you were saying this, like, you know, if you know up front that certain tiles or certain appliances are, are having shortages, you know, when the buyer's selecting those, do you recommend almost 
helping them choose an option B <laughs> just in case, you know, like all of a sudden this tiles out. Okay, Mr. And Mrs. Customer, let's look at what is another option just in case we get to that point. Setting the expectation up front that that could be a, a possibility. I think that's a great idea. I mean, I, in fact, you can, you can also narrow the choices, but you can also tell people very specifically, look, I'm having trouble with these tiles right here. So if you pick one of them, it may result in a delay in your house. If, if that's true, do you, A, want your house to wait the extra week for that tile? Or, or may, may, and if we can't get it, B, what's your second choice? And then if it is a delay, do you want me to use your second choice or not? I mean, there's lots of conversations you can have, and I would be reluctant to tell any one builder what way to do it. But I would also say that to not think about it, to not address it is a mistake. Address it however you want, but address it. Yeah, I think the resounding point to all of it is have the conversation with the customer up front about all of it, right? It's just open, honest exactly. communication, like you said, from the very beginning. Because, you know, we talk about this from a sales perspective, and that is, you know, when you're when you're talking set the set the right expectation. Because if you don't set the right expectation up front with the customer, they're going to leave. And then they're going to set their, set their own, own expectation, expectation right. of which you don't know what it is. Well, not only that, <laughs> but it's probably completely unrealistic because the last time I looked, most of them are not building 100 houses a year for a living. That's right. The other so, thing, though, is the messaging really does matter because you can see with, with this kind of idea, what you don't want to do is just portray uncertainty. Like that is what we don't want to do. So it's we don't want the messaging to be well, there may be a delay with this tile. Like you have to take it full circle yep. and give the solution to the problem, which is there may be a delay. What is your second choice? Would you want to, if it is going to be delayed, would you want to go with that choice? So like the last thing we want to do is give our, give buyers one more uncertainty in their life. Well, I think, first of all, I want to say, I, I'm completely surprised, Molly, that you talked about the messaging like it was important. <laughs> 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 Wow. <laughs> because I would expect nothing else. But but again, you are 100% correct. The, the, you know, the message, facts are facts, messages are messages, and somewhere there's an intersection, right? As a math guy, I love Venn diagrams, you know, the two circles that overlap, mm -hmm. right? And so that, that intersection between the truth and how you say it is a big deal. And you, you want to, I can tell you a fact and be honest, but I can tell it to you in a way that makes you feel good, or I can tell it to you in a way that makes you feel bad, or I can tell it to you in a way that you don't even understand what I'm talking about. So we need you to understand what I'm talking about, and we need you to hopefully feel good. And I think saying, starting with congratulations, you're, you know, you, you've got a slot, you're going to get a house. Now, let's talk about how that what that means. It's not going to be as fast as we would like it to be or as fast as you'd like it to be because this is what's going on in the world. And so you need to understand these things. And these are the issues we're having. And, you know, but congratulations because you bought last month and did you see we just raised the prices again? You know, you don't have to tell them that sometimes, but sometimes we tell them. It depends on whether you want them to be aware of it or whether you're just going to let them figure it out for themselves. But Clients always feel good when there's a price increase after they bought, right? It makes them feel good. It, it, it's an affirmation 
Customers are looking for affirmation all the time about their choices, their decisions, everything. Everybody wants to believe they made good decisions, even though most people make their decisions completely irrationally. All these studies have shown this, right? And Molly, you've, you've read some of my stuff about cognitive biases. I mean, people have cognitive biases all over the place. They don't want to admit it. Um, you know, they, if you explain it to them, they'll shake their head. They still won't believe they're affected that way. I don't do those things. I'm, I'm a logical thinker. None of us are logical thinkers. We're all biased by these cognitive biases inside of our head. So a good messenger understands what those biases are, and he understands how to talk about things the right way. And I, and I couldn't agree with you more, Molly. I think messaging is unbelievably important. I agree 100%. Yeah, one of the things that we're seeing and we talk about sometimes is how technology has brought those biases to the surface because you can really actually track behavior now. And we talk a little bit about that with social media. So you have been in the industry for 49 years. I mean, that's you have seen this industry change and evolve. And I think your your passion for understanding the business and the people and the psychographics and the demographics and the numbers and all of that has kept um, has kept you at the at the front of the industry. Talk to me a little bit about technology because I know you gave a, a program at the Builder Show last year. Um, what are your thoughts on you know how builders have adapted and are continuing to adapt in that way? So I think builders are adapting at a, at, at a pretty good clip. So again, one of my builders has been at the forefront of technology. He was one of the first to have interactive floor plans. He's one of the first to automate certain things. And he commits, he commits, well, this year we're committed. He's a, he's a $50 million builder, uh, which turns out to be about 145 houses for him. We're committing $250,000 to software upgrades this year alone. Um, we're, we believe strongly in that. I am a, um, I have a, I have a vested interest in a small artificial intelligence firm that works with home builders that, that you guys know that, um, we believe that this data that you just talked about, we're getting unbelievable data for our customers, for our builders about their customers, um, data that really helps you know where they're coming from physically, who they are demographically. So I'm a big believer that I'm a big believer in general in technology. Um, for my age, I think I'm fairly technologically proficient, right? Um, I teach Excel to a lot of people, which I, which I find fascinating that a 70-something-year-old guy can teach Excel to a bunch of 15-year-olds. So um, <laughs> who, some of whom really want to learn it and some of whom really don't. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make is technology is it's everywhere and it's in so many forms. Because even though I try to stay abreast of the technology, uh, I'm always hearing about things I didn't understand. You know, one of, one of my clients yesterday, we were having a Zoom meeting and he's telling me, well, we're, this is all recorded and it's going to be converted to notes by this program that I have. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, and I remember when Dragon, which is the word conversion program, was brand new. Yeah. I had to pay to get it. And I was the guinea pig that they were trying to get the program better because it was about 70% correct and 30% incorrect. And so you look at you look at verbal communication with the computer today, and you can see where this is going to go in, in another 10 or 20 years. So, you know, 
look at look at uh, Siri and and all this stuff. I mean, it's just a it's kind of crazy. And now we people my age we've seen it when it wasn't there. I look at my grandchildren; they don't know from this. We we had our kids and the grandkids in the house the other day. And I have a phone here next to my desk; it's a landline, and one of them asked, "What's that?" <laughs> and I and I, I'm serious. And I said, "It's a telephone." And he said. No, really, what is it? I, he's, he's, <laughs> I said, it's a telephone. He said, well, first of all, it's so big. And second of all, what are those wires coming out of it? And I said, it's a landline. It's hooked up to phone lines buried in the street. Why would you do that? Well, <laughs> it's left over from another time. What can I tell you, Nico? It's left over from another Well, why, why don't you get a cell phone? I have a cell phone. Then why do you... St- I mean, this whole conversation was insane. And... You know, it makes me realize that different people have different perspectives. You, you always have to look at the world through through your lens, and then you have to try to look at it through the other people's lens, right? This is called, by the way, it has a fancy name. This is called allocentric. If you can look at problems and circumstances through the other person's eyes, that's allocentric instead of egocentric. And so... I think one of the things that makes a good businessman, makes a good consultant, makes a good anything is the ability to look through other people's eyes. Right, Molly? But you when you write when you write the message, are you writing it for me or are you writing it for the reader? Absolutely. And you missed my correction where I said business person instead of businessman. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I, I take that I take that correction. And apologize I, profusely. That was and a very allocentric of you, Al. Whenever I use the phrase "businessman," it I, means people of all races, creeds, colors, sexes, I genders. I am like, no, I, but it's a habit. I mean, it's it's no different than this giant debate about the master suite, right? You've heard yeah. this whole thing, right? The, yeah. the, the National Association of Realtors has come out and said you can't call it that. We don't want you to call it that. Yeah. So, I mean, I get it, and. And words have power. This is as a as a messaging person, you know it. Words yeah. that words have unbelievable power. As we wrap up, Al, there there was something you said that I really just want to circle back to because it resonated with me. You talked about the short game and the long game, and what happens in a market like this. Um, Matt talks about it um, and refers to it as good market syndrome. Um, where people just like take it for granted and think this is the way it is. And I, I think um, I want people to think about that. Like, are you playing the short game or are you playing the long game? Because the people who are playing the long game are the ones who aren't taking this for granted and are, are doing the things that they need to do for the future of the company, not necessarily for the market we're in at this exact moment. So exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and I think, you know, I, I had this conversation about an hour ago on a Zoom call with one of my clients where, I, in this particular case, I'm coaching the number two person in the company and because they've, they're, they've got new responsibilities. And we talked about she's, under, she's getting a lot of pressure um, from the trades for more money. And I said, you need to sit down with them and have a conversation that says, if you need a little bit more money because other people are trying to lure you away, we can talk about that, but you need to understand that's a temporary thing, not a permanent thing. You need to think about the long game. That's what I said, told her to tell them. You need to think about the long game. You've worked for us for five years. We pay you every two weeks like a clock. Yeah, somebody else might offer you more money. If you come back, if you leave me and come back in four months, 
and I'm not happy with you because you left me high and dry. Is that the game you want to play? Because just, you know, I'm not threatening you. I'm just telling you that we're here to have a long-term relationship. And I would hope that you want to have that same relationship. So, but we're seeing a lot of the trades are being really distracted by the bright, shiny object, which is an extra dollar an hour, an extra 50 cents a square foot, whatever, that other people are offering. And you got you to gotta help them understand that that's the short game. That's not the long game. Yeah, sometimes as the builder, especially when you're dealing with the trades, sometimes with the builder, you can add value by essentially helping almost as a business coach. Because a lot of them, a lot of times they, there's a miss on how to run a business, right? Well, I'm just a framer. I just do blah, 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 blah. No, you're a business. And this is how, you know, these are the way you should look at things. Um, and I think those can always bring tons of value outside ways that you can bring value outside of that extra 50 cents a square foot. Well, yeah. In fact, we could have a giant discussion about how to become the builder of choice with trades, right? What, what does that mean from a trade perspective? What makes you the builder of choice to a tradesman, right? You know, there's, there's six or eight different things that if you do them, they will, whether they consciously or unconsciously get it, for many of them, it will bring them closer to you and make it more difficult for them to leave. Yeah, for sure. Al, before we wrap up, I would love to know where the first place you are going to travel to is going to be, because you are quite the world traveler. The first place I'm going to travel to is I'm going to take a trip south and see four of my clients, all of whom will take me bass fishing while I'm there. Oh. So I haven't been bass fishing for three months, four months. It's killing me. And I went out to the golf course here the other day, caught nothing. But I know that when I go to Georgia and Alabama and see my clients down there, we'll have great luck fishing. And I have some really great clients. I mean, I've, through the years, we've, many of my clients have been with me 15, 20 years. And many of my clients are, I now have young versions of, I have the sons of maybe eight or 10 of my clients. I'm now dealing primarily with their children. So mostly sons, one daughter. Um, but um, oh, that was for you, Molly. I, think. I know I'm smiling. <laughs> so, um, but no, I mean, Roselle and I are supposed to go to Japan uh, in April on a cruise. Molly knows we're big cruisers. We've been on 54 cruises and I don't, know if that's going to happen or not but i booked another cruise later in 2021 to go to the middle east and israel so we'll see that that one i'm hoping we'll at least get that one done all right well amazing you i mean we could talk all day obviously uh this is what we all love um thank you for sharing all this with our audience if people want to reach out to you how can they get a hold of you uh they can reach me at uh Mail, M-A-I-L, at H-B-N-N-E-T dot com. Here's what we would say it in the Army. That's Hotel Bravo November, November Echo Tango dot com. And the message will come to me. And if, if anybody needs to reach me, I'll even give you my cell number. It's 410-340-2352 if anybody needs to talk to me. What about your landline? I mean, we just heard about it. I don't give out the landline number. <laughs> well, you know, you know what's really funny about that is just uh, if the kids pick up that landline and then they they put put their ear up to the receiver and they look at you and say, "What's that noise coming from the phone?" They and did. they don't know what the dial tone <laughs> they, is. They did. 
what, what, what was, I didn't tell the rest. He, was, he said, does it really work? And my wife said, of course it works. He says, can you show us? So they made me call their, they made me call their iPad on, oh on the landline. It was, it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. So, but that's uh, hysterical. hysterical. By the way, I used to have five landlines and we still have three. My wife won't let me get rid of the last. She, <laughs> she clings to them. She, and, and none of them are through cable because quote, if the cable goes out, at least I won't lose my phone too. So, you know, <laughs> Everybody's got to hold on to what they want to hold on to. I get it. So, again, thank you yeah. so much for the opportunity. Anytime, feel free. I'd love to talk more with people. Um, assuming we get real feedback. To me, it's all about the feedback loop. If, I, if I'm talking and I feel like I'm talking into the wilderness, then after a while you lose your enthusiasm. But if people reach out to you and you know you, you affected somebody and you reached somebody, then that's really positive for me personally. So, well, there you yeah. have it. I want your feedback. So, uh Let's take this conversation online. And of course, we'll loop Alan. And thank you for being here. And it was great catching up with you. And thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Al. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Mm-hmm.